Well, good morning and welcome. My name is Travis Bowles. I am a church planning resident here at Redeemer Church. And if you haven't heard, I'd be glad to tell you that we are prayerfully working towards planning a church in the Cypress area called Harbor Church. And so we're excited about that and prayerful about that. Um, But before we begin here, I'd like to open us up in prayer. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you that through your son, Lord, we get to pray to you, we get to worship you. Lord, thank you for your word. Your word says that it is, your word is powerful. It's like a hammer and it's like a fire. So Lord, please just give us wisdom and discernment and direction this morning as we open up your word and try to apply it to our lives. Lord, we ask all these things through your son's name. Amen. Well, Matthew Henry is someone you've probably heard of. Matthew Henry is a kind of well-known Bible commentator. Uh, if you've pulled open your Bible apps and you've looked through, you've probably seen Matthew Henry's name pop up. He's from the late 1600s and early 1700s, and he really is a pretty good Bible commentator. But the story that everybody kind of leaves out about him, and I just recently learned, is that one time he was robbed. And they took, the robbers took his money and took his wallet, and he penned this in his journal. He said, let me be thankful first because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. Third, because they took all, or I'm sorry, although they took my all, it was not much. And fourth, because it was I who robbed and not I who robbed. It was I who was robbed and not I. Old English is very difficult to read sometimes. I could just imagine him sitting at his desk writing this down and now we're here in modern, modern times going, what did he just say? So he's thankful. And this type of thankfulness is almost lost on us nowadays, right? Um, so we kind of have to work through that a little bit. Matthew Henry seems to have found four more reasons than I can find to be thankful in this low point in his life. And Matthew reminds us that if we kind of shift our perspective a little bit, we can find some things in our lives to be thankful to the Lord for. See, apparently Matthew Henry took Paul's instruction to give thanks in every circumstance very serious. I wonder if you're like me, and sometimes you find it hard to be thankful. Sometimes you find it hard to have a heart of gratitude. Well, this morning... We'll be looking at Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, where Jesus heals 10 men who were pariahs, who were outcasts. And Jesus highlights one of these men. And he highlights what's going on in the heart of one of these men. And he uses it to teach us a spiritual truth. So let's jump right into this in verses 11 through 12. It says, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a village and he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. So there's this reminder right from the start, there's an emphasis that Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. It foreshadows that he's on this God-given mission that will culminate once he gets to Jerusalem. That is that he will be um, crucified and he will die for our sins on the cross. But right now, We kind of gloss over this most of the time, but him and his disciples, they are on foot and they are on a journey. So there was no Uber back then. There was no mass transportation. So they're on foot and they're moving along and they're on the border between Galilee and Samaria, 
which might as well be a whole other country, as we'll soon find out. But to understand the weightiness of this passage, right, these 10 leprous men show up. And so to understand the real weightiness of what's happening and understand how these 10 men probably felt given their circumstances, we really have to understand what the Bible talks and says about leprosy. See, leprosy was common back in Bible times and still around the day. Normally when we talk about leprosy, nowadays we're talking about a more narrowly defined type of skin infection. But in the Bible, leprosy is generally like catch-all phrase. It catches some rashes and other skin issues. And so if you were a Jewish person, you were a Hebrew, and you had a skin rash pop up or some kind of skin issue pop up, you would present yourself to a priest. A priest would look over it. And then if it was leprosy, well, then he would declare that you were then unclean. To them, this was a big deal. Being declared unclean had some serious ramifications. Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, Leviticus we normally kind of, kind of skip over when we're reading our Old Testament, right? But here we learn that in Leviticus, the Hebrews were told, hey, this is how you handle a person who has leprosy. In Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 through 46, it really kind of gives us a context of what life of a leper was like. It states, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone and his dwelling shall be outside of the camp. So you can imagine leprosy was quite the stigma. Leprosy meant that you couldn't worship in the temple. Worship, uh, leprosy meant that you couldn't get to enjoy the normal things in life that we get to enjoy. You couldn't stand in close proximity with a friend and hold a conversation. It meant that you couldn't have simple physical contact with someone. You couldn't shake their hand. There was no physical affection. You couldn't hug someone or pat someone on the back. No, this was a pretty lonely life. Even in verse 12, we see that the men, they stood at a distance and cried out to Jesus. Their existence was pretty depressing. Leprosy also in the Old Testament is usually talked about as a consequence of sin. And I wanna, I wanna give some clarity here. I wanna give some nuance. The Bible doesn't always link someone's illness as a consequence of their sin. So just because you sin doesn't mean that you're necessarily gonna come down with illness and according to biblical theology. But in the Old Testament, thematically, they looked at leprosy as this powerful object lesson of the effects of sin on a person's life and the effects of really the influence of sin on a person's life. And so for example, in the book of Numbers, Moses' sister, Miriam, speaks out against Moses, God's chosen voice for the Israelites. And God strikes her with leprosy. Also in 2 Chronicles, King Uzziah, he grows prideful and he enters in the temple and he tries to offer some burnt incense on the altar, which is a task only set aside for Levitical priests and the Lord for his pride and arrogance strikes him with leprosy. So oftentimes in the Old Testament, leprosy really served as this powerful lesson for the influence sin had on a person. But it was not only just a health issue, it was also an issue of worshiping because they were declared 
unclean and they couldn't enter the, the temple to rightly worship God. It made you separate from others. You were no longer in fellowship. But apparently these 10 men, they had formed a colony of outcasts. Historians tell us that this was quite normal back then, um, that lepers would join together in a community and they would stay in that community until they were either cleansed or healed or they died. See, in and of themselves, and during that, during that time, the, the type of medicine they had, they really had no help in and of themselves. But it seems that these men who were socially distant from society, they somehow had heard about Jesus. These 10 men were on a mission in this passage. Verse 13 states that they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Somehow these 10 men could recognize Jesus and his disciples from a distance. It's surprising and interesting that they call Jesus master because just from an outside perspective, Jesus is kind of classically, he's untrained, he's uneducated, he's just, he's just a regular blue collar carpenter and they're using this term calling him master. It's a term that generally the disciples use to talk about Jesus in the book of Luke. So in it, there's this sense of hope they have. It's, there's this, this attitude of expectation. There's this attitude of, of trust on their part in Jesus. So there's this real sense of hope when they cry out for help. And they're obeying societal rules. They're staying from a distance, but they're also not afraid to call out to Jesus where all people can hear them. Jesus then responds to them. He lovingly meets them in their time of need. In verse 14, it says, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. When Jesus tells them, go, go and show yourself to the priests, he's asking them to be obedient to, their, to his instructions, to his directions. Jesus has them follow the Torah. He has them follow Leviticus 13 and 14, which authorizes a Levitical priest to look over someone who maybe had leprosy and maybe they don't have leprosy now. And so they look over them and they declare that person as clean. The Levitical priest sort of acts like a de facto health inspector who looks over it and says, okay, you're good to go. You can now enter into fellowship. You can enter into the temple and properly worship God. And it says, as they went, they were cleansed. So these 10 men are then healed after being obedient to Jesus's direction. These 10 men have done nothing deserving this cure. They've done nothing to deserve to be healed except lift up their voices, beg to Jesus for mercy, and then follow his instructions. Now, as modern readers, we kind of have to be careful when we're reading these supernatural stories, especially in the gospels. We have a tendency to sort of gloss over or kind of flatten out these stories. But really, we really need to be in awe at the fact that Jesus just healed 10 men simultaneously. Not only that though, but we should be at all at Jesus's love and his mercy and his compassion that he shows these 10 outcasts and pariahs. I also think that the Jewish hearers and listeners and the people observing this event, they would have also had some awe at this event. See, they were, if you, especially if they were Jewish, they were raised learning the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures. They would have compared this event to what they've seen in the Old Testament with Elisha, the prophet. 
See, Elisha the prophet in 2 Kings, there is this Syrian army commander who comes to Elisha to be healed from leprosy. So he's Syrian. So once again, he's also a foreigner. He's also an outsider, also a Gentile. And he comes to Elisha and Elisha gives him directions from the Lord to go and dip himself in the river of Jordan seven times in order to be healed and he's cleansed. But Jesus is the true and better Elisha who just heals merely from himself by giving words and words of instruction. Not only does he just heal, like Elisha healed one person, but Jesus heals 10 simultaneously. So they would have been at all at this moment. Then in verses 15 through 16, it says, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God, and with a loud voice, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks, now he was a Samaritan. So out of the 10 men that were healed, one of them returns. Notice that the, the ESV adds the word now. So now he was a Samaritan. So what they're trying to do there is they're trying to add the emphasis that's in this original language because it's really surprising that the one man who returns is a Samaritan. See, the Samaritans and the Jews, they had been at odds against one another for hundreds of years. And you really kind of have to explain the history here that's kind of behind this. Israel was a unified country under three kings, under King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. After King Solomon, the country split into two countries. You had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. That northern kingdom, the capital was called Samaria, hence the word we get Samaritans. The king of Assyria comes in and he conquers the northern kingdom and takes a good portion of that population of Jews off into captivity. Then he takes a group of foreigners, brings them into the northern kingdom, and then the Jews that are still there intermarry and intermingle with them. And that common sentiment of during the time period where Jesus was is that basically those Samaritans weren't Jews. They were just as bad as Gentiles. They were foreigners. Even Jesus describes this Samaritan as a foreigner in the text. So this leper really has a double dose of being an outcast. Uh, see, I, uh, just to kind of even emphasize this point even more, the Samaritans set up a rival religion and they even set up a temple on Mount Herazim. And the Jews later on in life, they would even go and they would go and destroy that temple. So there was some real bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritan. So this, this leprous man who returned had a, just this double dose of being a leper and also being a Samaritan. He had a double dose of being an outcast. And then verse 16, surprisingly, it says that he fell on his face at Jesus's feet. This leper who was an outcast, who had to distance himself from others, this leper who couldn't enter the temple to properly worship the Lord is now at the feet of Jesus giving him thanks. See, in their culture, you would only prostrate yourself in front of generally an altar or a king, not just a nearly, just a, just a mortal man. So this is a surprising display that this Samaritan is doing. And now this leper who is an outcast, distant from all, distant from worshiping God, is now brought near to God through Jesus. There's this imagery of him being far from God, calling out to Jesus, to now being at Jesus' feet. See, sin separates us from God. Sin puts up a dividing wall between us and the Lord. Sin causes a, a break in our relationship with the Lord. See, because God is perfect and holy, our sin bans us from the presence of the Lord. And only through Christ and his atoning work can we approach God through faith. 
See, Jesus is in the business of reconciliation, bringing those far from God near to God. As Pastor Lawson preached on last Sunday, we get to join this awesome story that God is doing in the world. We get to be, thankfully, we get to be ambassadors, helping people far from God come close to God through Jesus. Then Jesus comments on this entire exchange here in verses 17 through 19. He says, then Jesus answered, we're not 10 cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So Jesus points out that there were 10 men and only one of them returns. It's probably, if you kind of think about the context, it's probably because those other nine men, they were probably Jewish men and they were headed off to Jerusalem to go see a priest so that way they could re-enter into fellowship, re-enter into social life. And Jesus here highlights the actions of this one man who returned. Jesus is more interested in the heart of this Samaritan who stayed. And we have to ask the question, why did the Samaritan return? It's an important question. It helps us really kind of center in on the main point of this passage and event. Jesus is highlighting something here in this man's heart and his attitude. Is that he was, had gratitude, is that he had a thankfulness and he was returning to Jesus. Thankfulness brings this one man back and surprisingly to them, he's a Samaritan. From this, we learn that God desires for us to express thankfulness, to have gratitude in our hearts, to worship and to praise him for the good things that he has done for us. This despised Samaritan took the time to praise God, the giver, and not the gifts. And it makes us reflect on our own hearts. Are we thankful? Is thankfulness something that we only don on thankful, uh, Thanksgiving when we're sitting around the table and we're talking about what we're thankful for for the year? Is thankfulness something that really colors our hearts and our attitudes? Does it really shape our prayers and our lives and our relationships? Now, I realize that there are some real barriers to thankfulness and gratitude. All too often, we also listen to kind of the competing narrative of this world. A life of gratitude is difficult in our modern environment, right? Oftentimes, what's kind of praised is the pride, pride, proud. Um, oftentimes, humility is despised. Oftentimes, we, um, society enthrones one's own heart as kind of the source of authority in our, in our world. I personally, um, when I struggle through being thankful, it's generally also tied to me being worried or anxious. It's hard to be thankful when you're worried or anxious or when you think that um, everything is kind of in flux or in chaos or you think everything is kind of in a crisis state. I have not hit the point where I'm like Matthew Henry where I can find four additional ways to be thankful in the low points in my life. So instead, I think that we need to listen to the counter narrative that the Bible gives us. See, we of all people have a reason to be thankful. So as we close here, I just want to, us just to kind of think through the story of creation and redemption. And I want you to think through thankfulness through that lens. See, God is our creator. He created all things. He created the earth and everything in this world. And God did not have to create the world. 
That was kind of a, kind of a shocking statement to say, but God is self-sufficient. The part of being God is that he doesn't need creation. He doesn't need creatures because he's self-sufficient. But thanks be to God that he created everything. And not only did he create everything, but thanks, thankfully, he sustains it. He's actively at work holding all things together. And thanks be to God that all we have, we really owe to him. Everything we have is a gift from him. Then God created man and woman in the garden. God eternally existed, right, before creation as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one. They had perfect unity and fellowship. They didn't have to create us. But God, thankfully, God chose to create us. He, thankfully, he chose to create you. Not only that, though, but thankfully, he created us in his own image. And we get to reflect God's character and his glory. And we were created to have a relationship with him, to experience fullness of joy in God. But God chose this awesome opportunity for us to have a relationship with him. And then in the garden, Adam and Eve, they sin. They rebel. Adam and Eve were not content. They were not thankful for everything that God had provided for them in the garden. He gave them everything in the garden, but they wanted more. They disobeyed God and they sinned. Their sin plunged us into darkness. And our sin alienates us from God. In our natural state, the Bible defines us as rebellious. We are enemies of God. We are hostile to God. Paul the Apostle tells us that one of the characteristics of godlessness is ingratitude. Romans chapter one, verse 21, Paul says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. The sinful nature that we have and the sins we've committed, it rightly makes us subject to God's wrath. Our sins rightly deserve eternal punishment. But thanks be to God that he did not leave us in rebellion and darkness. Thanks be to God that he was rich in love and mercy and he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Thankfully, God sent Jesus who's fully God and fully man to live a sinless life and to die on the cross to bear God's wrath and a punishment that we deserve. Thankfully, he rose from the grave again in order to give his people eternal life. Thankfully, God provided us a way out of rebellion and out of darkness. Thankfully, God saved us from wrath and punishment. Thankfully, through Jesus, we've been extended love and grace and mercy, and we've been reconciled into a right relationship with the Lord. Thankfully, through God, we have been adopted as children of God. We are sons and daughters of God. Thankfully, we who were once far from God are now brought close to God through Jesus. And thankfully, one day, Jesus will return and he will make everything right and he will make everything new. And so the right response to this is to repent of our sins. It's to place our faith and trust in Jesus. The right response to this is, is thankfulness and gratitude. It is worship and praise. The right response is to make him known. We of all people should be thankful. So I wanna close with just giving us four ways that we can begin to cultivate and maintain a heart of gratefulness and thankfulness. Now over lunch, discuss these. I'm pretty sure you can come up with some more. So I'm not trying to be legalistic here. I just wanna give you some handles on some ways that we can begin to promote thankfulness in our hearts. 
Paul, if you've noticed when you're reading his letters, he begins most of his letters by thanking the Lord. So he does this in Philippians, he does this in 1 Timothy. So for a season, try to begin to begin your prayers or close your prayers with thanking the Lord for the ways that he has, he has blessed you, or the things that he's given you. Secondly, this might sound overly simple, but thanking the Lord before a meal is good and it's biblically rooted. It's something that we need to revise and kind of resurrect in our, in our culture. We need to thank the Lord. It's biblical because Jesus and the disciples thanked the Lord before they ate. And when we begin to thank the Lord for the ways that he provides for us throughout our day, it begins to cultivate that heart of gratitude. So try to thank the Lord for the small ways that he's blessed you, as well as the mundane ways that he has blessed you, as well as the big things. And thirdly, try to begin to express to people that you're thankful for them. Try to express to them that you're thankful for your relationship with them, the ways they've encouraged you or blessed you. Paul did this with the Philippians. He wrote to them and, and thanked them. He also thanked them for participating in gospel partnership with him. See, they helped fund his missionary journeys, going and sharing the gospel with the lost and planting churches, and he thanked them. So that over this week, just try to thank some people that God has put into your life. Try to thank your coworkers. Harder one is try to thank your boss. Try to, uh, try to thank your pastors, your small group leaders, I think your spouse, your wife, your husband, even your kids. And lastly, I think Matthew Henry here is very helpful. He kind of highlights something. We see we're prone to often have kind of a heart full of covetous. We seem to look at the things in our life that we either don't have or the things that we want or the things that were taken from us. And Matthew Henry teaches us that if we shift our perspective a little bit, there are some reasons to be thankful for in your life. So begin to thank the Lord in all those circumstances. Thank, thank the Lord for the things that we normally take for granted. We should probably begin by thanking the Lord for the gospel and the good things and the good news that he has given us through his son, Jesus. So let's close here in prayer. Lord, thank you. For, we of all people have abundant reasons to be thankful. You have blessed us through your son. You have pulled us out of rebellion and darkness. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, please just grow a heart in us that is thankful, one that is full of gratitude towards you, towards the, the people that you've given us in our lives, for our children, our marriages, our jobs. So Lord, I pray that for all of us, Lord, please help us to cultivate and maintain a heart of thankfulness. We ask all these things in your son's name, amen.